Bienvenidos. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Seville episode 7, an episode in which we're going to cross the river over to that other side, the left bank, the part where there's the quite different suburb of Triana with its own history, its own traditions, its own atmosphere, even today. If you think about it, there are lots of cities in which the river's so important. Londoners are always keen for you to know whether they live north or south of the river, aren't they? Then the left bank refers to the left bank of the River Seine in Paris, of course, an area deemed to be quite different from the rest. Think about a city like Budapest, which actually was originally two cities, one on each side of the River Danube, Buda and Pest. And so it's not that surprising that in Seville too, the area across the other side is quite different. So, Triana, here we come. I don't know whether it makes you feel more or less interested to hear that the rough guide describes this area as being endearingly scruffy. Laurie Lee also noticed that it was a little bit dilapidated when he was visiting in the 50s. He stood on the riverbank in Seville, looked across to Triana and described what he saw as being, quote, a crumbling group of lemon-coloured hovels battered with poverty and age. Don't let that put you off, though. It is different. It is the former working-class area. It's perhaps not as shiny and new as the loveliest parts of Seville, but it is definitely worth a visit. So, the plan for the episode, then. I'm going to do a little bit of a history on the main things that have happened there. I'm going to highlight two or three places to visit once you get over to the other side. The main church, Santa Ana, the Sailor's Chapel and the Cartuja Monastery, which has links to Columbus, so that's quite interesting. And then going to look at two or three things which make Triana special. So that would be its gypsy connection. It's long been the home of the gypsies in Seville. Its flamenco connection, which of course grows out of the gypsy connection. And its long links with the making of the beautiful tiles that you will have seen all over Seville. The ceramic industry, which grew up there, thrived there, and is in fact, even today, one of the reasons why you might go and visit. Okay, so going back in time a little bit then. We can say that Triana is certainly an ancient area. Its name, for example, is believed to come from that of the Roman Emperor Trajan, who was born in Italica nearby, so there were definitely Roman settlements there. The legend goes further back than that, actually, as to how this suburb or this part of the city arose at all. So you may already know that Seville is thought to have been founded by the Greek god Hercules, and the story goes that he was pursuing, in an amorous sense, the Phoenician goddess Astar, and she was having none of it. She tried to flee from him, so she flew across the river to get out of his way and settled herself in this area. And she's said to have been the first person to have done that, the first resident, if you like, and the person from whom everything else which followed came. It's always been a slightly other area, not least because it was quite difficult to get to. The Arabs, for example, built a bridge in 1171, Well, they called it a bridge. In fact, they called it the Bridge of Boats. This was under the Caliph Abu Yaqub Yusuf. What they actually did was they got 13 boats, tied them all together with metal chains, balanced some planks of wood on top, and called that the bridge. So as you can imagine, it was very precarious, swayed around all over the place, sometimes got swept away by floods, and we know that people died trying to use it. So none of this really encouraged the idea of traffic to and fro from Triana to Seville and back. Amazingly, it wasn't actually until the 19th century when a fixed bridge was built. The Puente de Triana, Triana Bridge, 
also known as the Puente Isabel, the Isabel Bridge, or Isabel II Bridge, named after the Queen who was reigning at the time when it was opened, was inaugurated on February the 23rd, 1852. Massive fanfares, military parade, much cheering and waving, deemed to be a jolly good thing. But really, all of that has contributed to the idea that Triana's always been a little bit over there. The people from Triana, a little bit outsiders in the city of Seville. This idea was very much reinforced by what's almost certainly the most terrible part of their history, which began in 1481, when Triana became the headquarters of the Spanish Inquisition. They took over a building called the Castillo de San Jorge, St. George's Castle in English, and made that the place from which much of the work, in inverted commas, of the Inquisition was carried out. The people doing this thought of themselves as organising a holy office. They had the Pope on their side, he'd certainly encouraged them. And what they were doing was trying to find out Jews who had been baptised as Catholics, thinking that that would mean they were safe, even in the new Spain, which was becoming very Catholic, but who in fact continued to practice their own religion. This was seen as unacceptable. They had to be found, rooted out and punished. Over on Triana today, you can visit the Inquisition Museum, which will tell the story of what happened. If you're thinking it's going to be all blood and gore, actually, of course that is what it's about really, but it's quite sensitively treated. So it starts, for example, with a multimedia presentation on the topic of judgment and the abuse of power. So saying right from the beginning, these are things that shouldn't have happened. If you go and visit, you get the chance to go down to the ruins of the castle itself and to see where the boats arrived, bringing their great variety of visitors, whether that would be prisoners, their lawyers, their relatives, informers. There's a lot of information, maps and pictures of other sites in Seville which are linked to the Inquisition and a model of the castle as it looked in the days of the Inquisition. Much bigger, fuller building than it is now, with its own chapel and stables and a little town almost within the walls, its own streets. There's a lot of information about the Inquisition itself. It tells you exactly how accusations were made, how people were rounded up and detained, how they had hearings during which often they were tortured, and then they would be sentenced and made to carry out an auto da fe, which was a public ritual of penance, sometimes preceding the fact that they were then going to be burnt to death. There are drawings by Goya showing you some of the people who were suspects, in inverted commas, suspected of being Jewish, and how they were made to wear tunics marked with an X and a pointed hat, so that everybody would know that they were people under investigation. And just to really make the story seem more real, there's a film at the end, which is actually fictional, but takes a young woman and shows you how she was falsely accused of witchcraft. A neighbour had reported her because she liked using plants to make cures for illnesses. She showed an interest in astrology. All of this was deemed to be very suspect, so she was reported, imprisoned, interrogated, and made to confess. Confess being, of course, again, a word rather strangely used in this context. So they've done their best to convey the facts without glorifying it or making it a gore-fest. Hats off to them. It's only really from the 19th century, so after the proper bridge went up, that we have many reports from visitors who'd been to Triana and reported what they saw. And in that century, it very much was a question of being a working class area with a lot of work going on. In fact, George Borrow visited in the late 1800s and described it as a barrio obrero, which means a working area. And 
here's a quote saying some of the things that he saw while he was there. Here they may be seen wielding the hammer. Here they may be seen trimming the fetlocks of horses or shearing the backs of mules. He goes on then to describe how people from Triana would come into Seville to try and sell some of their wares or to buy or to exchange animals in the market. So gradually, contract between the two halves of the city or the two sides of the river is growing. In the 19th century, I think you could very much say it was the heart of the Gitano community, so the gypsy community. Many of them lived there, often in particular sort of house, little little buildings called corrales, which were quite small communal houses centred around courtyards, often quite pretty, decorated with lots of flowers. You see the vestiges of some of that even today. And it was in that area that flamenco began and grew, thought to have been nurtured by the fact that this communal living and the courtyard together in the evenings was a good place for singing and dancing together. And so a style developed. Triana is very proud of its flamenco roots. I saw an exhibition in one of the museums there saying that Triana is one of the three towns in the what they were calling the triangle of flamenco. So they were saying Triana's one, the other two are Cadiz and Jerez. Flamenco began in the mid-18th century and they were very proud to put the line on their display which says, quote, the first flamenco songs were incubated here. I think you could say that today it's still a place where flamenco is the flavour of the place. It's somewhere that people still come if they want to learn more about it or to watch lots of flamenco performances, the less touristy ones, the ones that are really more for the locals. And the original singing in taverns and dancing at improvised fiestas in your neighbour's yard, all of that has grown into the art form and the industry, which is modern flamenco. Again, in the exhibition, this is the finishing quotation at the end, the district is still dotted with flamenco spaces, such as dance academies, social gatherings in the Don Cecilio Cultural Centre, and the Triana Theatre, as well as festivals and events in the Hotel Triana at the Biennale di Flamenco. So that's the festival of flamenco held every other year in Triana. In one of the squares, there's actually a monument to flamenco labelled as a Monumento de Triana al Arte Flamenco. So Triana's monument to the art of flamenco. Going to deal a lot more fully with flamenco in an episode in a week or two's time. So for the moment, just going to leave it there. Continuing our tour through history then, that's dealt with the 19th century. In the 20th century, as I mentioned earlier, Laurie Lee went to visit. I'm pretty sure he went more than once, but the extract I read by him about his visit was when he went in the 1950s and then wrote about it in his book, A Rose for Winter. He too found it very much to be a working place. He talked about people he saw as being potters and boot menders and carpenters and a rather strange description, and um, a group of people that described as, quote, an elite of free-moving, mysteriously purposed gypsies. I don't know if he'd be allowed to write that today, but anyway, that's what he wrote. He too very much noticed the arty and musical side, talking about how good the guitarists were, and what fantastic dancers he saw. He mentions poets as well, and he also points out the connection from this rather poor working-class area the sort of little boys who very much grew up wanting to make something of themselves, and he described them as, quote, small-boned, hot-eyed boys who go early to the bulls. So he's telling us that they could see that for them, perhaps a way to fame and fortune and maybe a path out of Triana and onto somewhere else would be to become a bullfighter. 
The bullfighting connection is quite strong in Triana, and this is reinforced in the same square where there's the monument to Flamenco. There's also a statue to one Juan Belmonte, who was one of the famous matadors from Triana. I think the statue dates from 1972. And it's a strange statue because it's got a hole in his chest. And if you stand behind it and look through the hole across the river to the rest of Seville, the building that's in your sight is the Real Maestranza, so Seville's glorious bullfighting ring, one of the biggest, fanciest, most famous ones in Spain. So whatever you think of bullfighting, you do have to accept that there's a link between it and Triana. Bringing things up to date, today I think you would have to say that although it still is a working area, there's a very bustling market, for example, full of marvellous food stalls. Do go and have a look at that, buy your picnic. There's also the ceramics industry. But I think you'd have to say that one of the main sources of income today is tourism. A lot of people who spend a few days in Seville, of course, cross the river, spend a day having a look round. And there are lots of pubs and restaurants and various watering holes to keep you happy. And there are also a number of places that you might choose to visit. So that's what I propose to do now. Just run through two or three of them and tell you a little bit more about what to expect if you go. So the first one would be something called the Capilla de los Marineros, which is really translates into English as the Sailor's Chapel, an 18th century chapel, best known really in Seville circles as being the home of the Esperanza de Triana, so the model figure of Mary that's used in the Semana Santa. This particular one, also known as Nuestra Señora de la Esperanza, so Our Lady of Hope, she's one of the stars of the whole week really. She's one of the few that leaves her home church at midnight on Good Friday and she's processed through Triana all the way across the bridge. A lot of Triana residents go across first and stand on the other side. This is all happening by candlelight, and as she approaches and passes them en route to the cathedral, they applaud. So it's a real date in the calendar in Triana. This chapel then is also the seat of one of Triana's best-known brotherhoods, and that too has a wonderful name. Let's see if I can pronounce it. So it's called the Cofradia de Jesús de las Tres Caídas y Nuestra Señora de la Esperanza. Okay, roughly, definitely a mention of Jesus there. Did you hear Jesús? And Nuestra Señora, Our Lady. So it's the brotherhood of both of those people. And also a lovely little chapel to look round. Bigger in scale is the main church in Triana, which is known as the Iglesia Santa Ana, so St. Anne's Church, built in the 13th century for Alfonso X. There's a plaque on the wall which tells you this and says the reason that he wanted to build it was because he'd had an eye infection. He believed that Santa Anna, St Anne, had cured him of this and so he had the church built to show his gratitude. It too is the seat of various brotherhoods but I think the thing that's best known about this church is the fact that its font is known as the Gypsy font. It's said that any baby baptised in that font will grow up having been given the gift of flamenco. More prosaically, the people of Triana will tell you that historically the Santa Ana Church, which is on slightly higher ground and set back a little way from the river, was always a place of refuge whenever the river flooded. The last place of real historical interest that I would suggest visiting is the monastery known as La Catuja, C-A-R-T-U-J-A, not quite sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, so a Carthusian monastery founded in 1399. It's well known today really for two reasons, one of which is its links to Christopher Columbus. 
It's known that it was one of his favourite places to stay when he was in Seville. I think particularly if he felt that people were following him, trying to work out what he was going to do next, etc. It was a good idea to come across the river and stay in this monastery, where there was a lovely library that he could work in. It's known, for example, that he definitely planned his second voyage in that library. When he went off on his travels, he used to leave his important documents, his will, for example, with the monks here. They're not there now, actually. They've been moved to the archives across the river. It's known, too, that he used to visit their little chapel, which was known as the Capilla Santa Anna, so again, St Anne's Chapel, to pray before he set off on his voyages. And so, quite fittingly, after his death, it was here that his bones were buried, put in a lead box, carried down into a specially made crypt below the chapel floor, and deposited. Several centuries later, in 1888 in fact, it was decided to put up a statue to Christopher Columbus outside. I've seen lovely descriptions of it in guidebooks talking about how it's there among the palm trees and the bougainvillea. And you think, oh nice, what a lovely resting place for him. But in fact, of course, his bones were moved, probably long before the statue was put up, and there's been controversy about exactly where they are. Recent DNA tests show that some of the bones in the cathedral were his, some definitely weren't, so it's thought that some of him is buried there, and the rest is thought to be possibly in the Bahamas. So that's the first reason for knowing about this monastery. And the second one is its history in the 19th century, when it became all caught up in the ceramics industry, for which Triana is still today very well known. If that's your reason for going there, or one of your reasons, then I can tell you that if you cross the bridge from Seville into Triana and take the first right and walk along just a few yards, you'll see on a corner there a big ceramic centre. It's got a lovely shop at the front where you can buy all sorts of wonderful things and a museum attached to it where you can learn all that you might want to know about Triana's tiles. It is quite a story and one that I'll attempt to summarise before going any further. So tile making, or pottery rather, in Triana goes back to at least the 12th century when it's known that the Almohad, or Islamic settlers, developed water wheels, dug wells, noticed that the heavy clay soil roundabout was good for pottery. We know that they had kilns and began to make things. Even after the Reconquista in the 13th century, lots of Islamic residents stayed on in Triana and they very much developed what they had already learned about pottery. We know that this was the period when they developed new techniques. They realised, for example, that you could use fine lines of grease to separate the colours on something that you were making, so you could make multicoloured things from then on. They discovered the technique that's called reflejo dorado, which translates as something like luster or shine. So their products became more and more beautiful. And they began using brushes to paint designs on, which meant, of course, that they could make much finer, more beautiful designs. And at this period, as we've said so many times before about Seville, it was very much about a combination of cultures. So some of the tiles and ceramics were decorated with geometric forms. That obviously goes back to the Islamic tradition. But at the same time, some of the non-Islamic designers were coming up with pictures of flowers, decorations of animals, coats of arms, all sorts of other things. There's quite a long period of several centuries of foreign influences arriving. So in the 16th century, for example, somebody who came from Genoa, one Nicoloso Francisco Pisano, what a lovely name, and he and people like him brought knowledge of the Renaissance and all that that meant for arts and production of crafts. So 
they began to use those influences. Later on, there were other tradesmen arriving from Northern Europe and eventually even from the Far East, from places like China. And all of these people brought their own ideas and fed into the development. Quite a big change came when it was discovered that you could use wooden moulds to make the tiles, which then meant that you could mass produce them. They became much more affordable. This was roughly at the time when traffic from the New World was toing and froing from Seville. And the growth of Seville as a port then meant that it became possible to export as well much more easily to other places. So not only were they making things for their own use, but it became possible to build up an industry. They very much were making them for their own use too, though. You'll have noticed some of the lovely tiled facades in Seville itself, and particularly in Triana. If you wander up and down one or two of the shopping streets or round the market, notice how many of the stallholders or shopkeepers have got lovely tiled shop signs with pictures on them telling you what wares they're offering you. In the 18th century, things took a little bit of a different turn again, because that was the era when fine porcelain started to arrive, first of all from China and then from places like northern Germany, Dresden, places like that. And so Triana pottery had to fight, had some competition. And really what happened was that the fine porcelain became the status symbol stuff that the very rich people who could spend a lot of money on it had. And then Triana pottery very much became, to quote a phrase I saw in the exhibition in the museum, aimed at a, quote, second and more modest social tier. So the development of Triana's pottery as more everyday wear. And things picked up enormously and made a massive change in the 19th century because of the arrival of an Englishman, one Charles Pickman, who came from the potteries in Staffordshire and saw the possibility of what he could do here in Triana. So he built a fine new china factory, which soon became successful. He brought with him new ideas such as assembly line production, so things could be made much faster. He introduced new technology and specialised labour, so the idea that certain people would focus on particular tasks and the whole thing would then be better made. He was pretty good at sales strategies as well. He produced production catalogues, for example, in order to market the wares. And things really grew and grew. It wasn't long before he'd got 56 specialist potters from the Midlands in England over in Triana helping, and before long he was employing four or 500 people. By 1895, it said that there were 1,200 workers employed. He introduced things like a narrow-gauge railway track so that all the workshops that he'd set up could be linked and the whole thing could become more and more productive and effective. Eventually, he decided to buy the Cartuchia Monastery, which was crumbling and in ruins, and turn that into his factory. This is actually quite nicely described in a book called Seville, Cordoba and Granada by Elizabeth Nash. And this is what she has to say about that. Quote, Many of the original buildings, including monk cells, had to be destroyed to make room for the new industrial production. The cloisters, the church's nave, the refectory, the sacristy, the stables and the grain stores were taken over for making clay and designing, painting, printing, glazing, gilding, storing, exhibiting and packing pots. Pickman built additional factory buildings and lived on the site in a house he built around the prior's cell. He's very much viewed in Triana as a hero, somebody who came and took what they were doing and made it much more productive and lucrative. He was eventually designated a provider of pots to the Spanish royal household. He was made a marquis, and so by the time he died in 1883, everybody knew about Charles Pickman 
and the wonderful things that he'd done for pottery and ceramics in Triana. So I hope that I've managed to give a picture of Triana, which underlines the fact that it is of Seville and linked, but it's also slightly set apart and different. They have, for example, their own festivals, the oldest, largest one of which is called the Festival of Santiago and Santa Ana, so St. James and St. Anne, originates from the 13th century and happens in July every year, very much river-based. It's a regatta and they have a mad activity called, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, the Kusana, which is where you are challenged to walk along a greasy pole balanced horizontally on the prow of a boat. They do seem to like doing dangerous things on water, don't they? There's another festival known as the Calle Betis, which is market stalls, showground activities, and as the exhibition about it I saw said, quote, the selling of green hazelnuts. So there you go. In the same exhibition, actually, there was a sentence sort of saying that the, the rhythm of the year is, is in the festivals which take place, putting it like this. The orange blossom marks the arrival of spring. Las Torrijas represents the unmistakable flavour of Easter week and the sound of the tamboril drum takes us to the hamlet of El Rocio. That refers to yet another festival where people march or walk along to the beat of a drum from Triana to a little hamlet on the coast called El Rocio. It plays a leading role in Semana Santa, as I've already said, and there are a number of the oldest brotherhoods in Seville, in fact, hail from Triana. They're listed in the exhibition. They're obviously very proud of all of them. I found a sentence which read, The Triana Brotherhoods that currently make penitential processions to the cathedral are La Estrella, San Gonzalo, La Esperanza de Triana, El Cachorro, and the very mysteriously named La O, the O just being a large capital O. And it also says that other well-known brotherhoods hailed originally from Triana, although these days they're based on the other side of the river. I do think if you're in Seville for long enough that a visit to Triana on one of the days is definitely worth doing. It's quieter than bustling Seville. It's perhaps true to say that in some senses it's slightly more down at heel, slightly tattier. You can see its history as a working class district perhaps in some of the streets. But nevertheless, it's a place of atmosphere. Somewhere where you can look at the lovely ceramic shop fronts, past statues on bullfighting and flamenco. Perhaps stay on for an evening of drinks and tapas, possibly with flamenco thrown in, and really get to know it a little bit. So then, leaving Triana behind, in the next episode, I'm going to talk about one cultural aspect of the city which really cannot be ignored, and that's bullfighting. I'll give you a little history. We'll go on a tour around the magnificent bullring, the Real Maestranza. We'll have some tales from bullfighters and one or two travel writers who went to see bullfighting there and generally focus for an episode on this really most Andalusian of pastimes. I will make a brief mention actually of the anti-bullfighting movement. I know bullfighting isn't everybody's thing. I personally don't think I could possibly go to one. But even if you think that, I think you do have to recognise that it really is an integral part of Andalusian and particularly civilian culture. So, that's it then for next week, or as I've learnt to say, la proxima semana. I think that means next week. So, for the moment then, thank you very much for listening. Muchas gracias, and goodbye. Adios. <laughs> <laughs>